want you to think about, what if I were to tell you this morning, uh, we're going to build a city, um, you know, several hours away, and uh, we're going to pull, you know, we're going to take numbers, and you choose a number, and we're going to, by lottery system, we're going to choose uh, one out of every ten of you to, you know, just get up and move, and, uh, and move into this new city. How would you feel about that? Would you be like, oh, wow. Well, what's the new city, you know, going to be like? Well, it's still kind of, you know, being developed, and there's still some things that need to be done, but, uh, you know, that's where you're going to go. This is similar to what we see in, in Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, even in modern-day history, we saw something like this happen. I wasn't there at the time, but in 1956, uh, Brazil had been talking about this for a long time, but they decided to move their uh, country's capital from Rio de Janeiro to uh, Brasilia. And so they began in 1956 to build a new city, pretty much from scratch, and began to you know, build the, uh, from the center out and uh, the, the government offices. And um, so it took 41 months, less than four years. The city was ready, but then they had to populate the city. So there was incentives that were offered for people to move their families from the eastern coast of Brazil, which are mainly where all the large cities are, inland, um, 13 plus hours into Brasilia uh, to live in this new city. So there's some cool things about a new city, but there's also a lot of obstacles and things to overcome. Now, in 2022, there's over 4.5 million people that live in Brasilia in the metropolitan area. But here, look with me in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to see throughout chapter 11 and chapter 12, forward by faith with thankfulness. Forward by faith with thankfulness. No, it's not Thanksgiving yet, but it's, it's something, an important topic that God hopefully will encourage you and challenge you. I know it's important for me to remember, God, I want to be thankful. I don't want to murmur. I don't want to complain. Help me to think about all that you've done and that that would motivate me. In Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we see, first of all, thankfulness motivates us to live sacrificially. Verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem... And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Notice verse 2, though. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So it appears that, yes, there is this system of casting lots, and so there would be one out of ten. It's, it's interesting to me in a sense. It's almost kind of like a tithe in a way, of the people that had returned to the region from captivity. Um, of course, the temple had been re rebuilt many years past, and then the walls you know, had finally been completed around the city. And so it's almost as if now a tenth of the people are going to be chosen to uh, populate this city once again, Jerusalem, the holy city. But then there were others, in verse 2 it says, all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And thankfulness motivates us to live sacrificially. Throughout 11 and 12, these two chapters, we're going to see a lot of things about singing and giving praise and celebrating and the joy that God gives. And I, I, as these people especially who willingly chose, yeah, I'll go, we'll move. A couple of things you need to think about. First of all, they refused to allow financial considerations to become an obstacle. They refused to allow financial considerations to become an obstacle. You know, living in Jerusalem 
would draw greater opposition from those who lived outside of Jerusalem. Remember that we've already gone through the the process of rebuilding the walls and uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and many accusations and opposition almost to the extent of all-out war where they were building and some had, you know, swords and a trowel in one hand, a sword in the other, and they they divided up among the wall. So those who lived within Jerusalem, although they were within a walled city, there's going to be most likely some financial complications. You know, the, the regions around probably would not trade with those within the city as easily as those without the city. So there's some financial loss that might happen in moving back in to the holy city. It would require reestablishing their homes, uprooting their families, starting maybe their, their business, their way of life, how they earn a living, all over again. But because they're thankful, they're, they're excited about what God has done, looking forward to what God will continue to do through his chosen nation, they refuse to allow financial considerations to become an obstacle. That's a big deal. Many times we've got a lot of college students with us this morning, and there's often an obstacle of, you know, where does God want me to go? And sometimes the first thought is, well, how much is the cost? And then even outside of college, when, you know, we, we begin looking for jobs, and all through middle, you know, middle age, and you maybe have a job transition, many times the question is, well, what's the pay? Yes, pay is important, but it also should be, what is God's will for me? How is God leading into this? And especially this group who are ministry majors, um, I, would, I would strongly challenge you as you look at ministry opportunities, don't think first about, well, well, what's the pay? What are the benefits? Pray and say, God, lead me to where you want me, and I'm going to trust you to provide for the rest of the needs that I have. Refuse. These people refused to allow financial considerations to become an obstacle. Also, we see that they were accepting greater spiritual expectations and accountability with joy. In Nehemiah 13, we won't go through that whole chapter today, Nehemiah showed great courage and even confronted many times. There was a span of time that that, uh, lapsed between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13. And unfortunately, many of those who in these two chapters are praising the Lord and making sacrifices and things for God... Many of those people, unfortunately, would fall away and would rebel for a while against God between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13. And Nehemiah comes back and he begins to confront. He says, I see this. So I'm just going to pull out a few things in Nehemiah 13, verse 7. It says, and I, Nehemiah, came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah. So Nehemiah is coming back into the city. Now, why am I saying this? Those who are choosing to go back into Jerusalem Jerusalem, understand there's going to be greater spiritual expectations. There's going to be more accountability for me. Am I ready for that? Do I accept that with joy? Am I I okay with living in this is not only the, the central city for the nation politically, but also religiously, am I willing to be under that spotlight? I think the Bob Jones students can identify, and I understood this you know, when I was a college student at a Christian university, um, there is a difference between on-campus students and off-campus students. Why? Off-campus students many times get away with a lot more. 
Christian colleges often have rules. What time you have to be on campus, who you can go out with, what you have to wear, and all these things. Many of the rules are good. Some rules are kind of silly. But many of the rules are good, and they're for the good of the students. But off-campus students don't have as much expectation or accountability as on-campus students. I grew up as a pastor's kid. My kids have been missionaries' kids, and now they're, they're, they're pastors' kids. There's greater expectations, there's greater accountability because they're within the circle of a, of a pastor, of a missionary. It's not always warranted, those, those greater expectations, but it happens. And we've, I heard things growing up, and my kids have heard things growing up like, wow, and he's a pastor's kid. I'm like, yeah, I'm a sinner though still. <laughs> and our kids would hear things, wow, and you're a missionary kid. In fact, one time they were playing with some Friends of ours, and, and this, this family to this day has, have been uh, phenomenal partners with us in ministry, but our kids were playing with their kids, and as sometimes happened, they got in a little argument, and one of the girls, you know, their girl said to, to Christina, well, you must not be a missionary. And she said, well, yes, I am. Why'd you say that? Well, because missionary kids don't act like that. Like, woo! But these people willingly chose to move back to Jerusalem, the holy city, where there would be greater expectation. And we see in Nehemiah 13, that happened. Where Nehemiah came back and he saw some things and he confronted. Even in Nehemiah 13.10 it says, I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Verse 15 of chapter 13, it says, In those days I saw, and it goes on in, in a few verses later, people bringing in heaps of grain, wine, grapes, figs, into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So those moving back into Jerusalem understood there's going to be greater expectation, greater accountability, but there were those who said, we'll go. We're ready. They were ready to make that sacrifice. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. So this is a sacrifice that we should be, yes, ready and, and, and willing and open to. I'm okay with spiritual accountability. I, I desire that. I want that. And that's something we try to help our children with is when they get in trouble, often I'll say, listen, God is being so gracious to you because he allowed this to come to light. And because of his love, now we can discipline, correct, and help you to move forward. Now, do I feel like that all the time, all the times that God disciplines me? No. But as a follower of Christ, that should be our attitude. God, help me to live for you. Help me to stay accountable for you and present my body as a living sacrifice. It goes on in Romans 12, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So thankfulness motivates us to live sacrificially, but next we'll see it also motivates us to live purposefully. Why do we live? What are our main goals? Uh, what do I strive for? What brings me excitement? What, what motivates me? Well, look with me in Nehemiah chapter 11. And again, I'm just going to kind of pick out some phrases because we're covering a lot of territory here. But Nehemiah 11 in the latter part of verse 15, it talk, it's talking about some Levites here. In the latter part of verse 15 of Nehemiah 11, it says this, who were over the outside work of the house of God. 
I, I like that, that it included that. Now, what did they do, you know, the outside work of the house of God? You know, were they doing some painting? Were they spreading pine straw? I don't know what they did, but there were some things that they were responsible for the outside work of the house of God. Notice verse 17 of Nehemiah 11. As it says, And Mattaniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. There's purpose. There's a sense of living. Why am I here? Well, it's not just to make money. It's not just to be able to do my hobbies, but it's to give thanks, to bring glory back to God. Notice verse 19. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates. This was another way that these people were showing, even in their service, at keeping the gate. And we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 13 that these gatekeepers were even instructed, listen, on the Sabbath, you close the gate, you don't let people come in to trade and sell because this is the Sabbath and we're going to keep it holy. The gatekeepers, this wasn't just a, a, a nonchalant job. This was important too, living purposefully. Verse 21 talks about, it says, but the temple servants... Then 22, we see the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzziah, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, once again, the singers, over the work of the house of God. Then verse 23, for there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. So this, some of these tasks, even singing here, was so important, so valued, that there was even a fixed uh, stipend for them as needed to live purposefully. And then notice verse 24. Pethahiah, son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. So we see several different ways here that these people aren't just, you know, saying as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9, yes, you know, we make a covenant and we're going to walk in God's law. But now they're doing it. They're acting. They're living. They're, they're living out what they've said and the commitment and the covenant that they had signed. A couple questions for you. How has God prepared and called you to serve him and his people? How has God called and prepared you to serve him and his people. And then the second question, are you living out that calling? Are you living a purposeful life? Are you living in a way that, yes, there's, there's goals outside of what I'm going to make on the next exam or how much my next paycheck is going to be or when I'm going to be able to go back you know, to my favorite hobby? There are many things that are far more important than that. Nehemiah 9.38, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. In Nehemiah 10, the latter part of chapter 10, in verses 28 and 29, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath, a commitment, a covenant, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. And Nehemiah 11 and 12 show many different ways that they're doing exactly that. Now, there's a risk here. There's a risk that these functions, these activities can become a duty, 
can become a task, can become a list of, well, if I do this, then hopefully God will bless me. Or at least if I do these things, I'm at least functioning as I should as a believer, as a follower of Christ. And it can become a duty. Whereas really, if we have a good and an intimate relationship with God, these tasks, they're not just duty, but they're going to be our delight. We're going to want to do those things. We're going to want to serve him because of our relationship with him, not to just check off a box. I don't know if, if Bob Jones students do this, but at one time at the Christian University I was at, we had to fill out, you know, forms. And there was extension forms. Where did you go to church? What did you do? And the, the spirit behind that was don't come to college, don't come to Christian University and study for ministry and do these things and not even to get involved in your local church. But occasionally, sometimes that, that paper motivated me more to do something during the week than really my relationship with Christ because I wanted to be able to say, yeah, okay, I did it. Checked it off. It shouldn't be a duty, but it should be a delight to serve our Heavenly Father. Then we see that thankfulness motivates us to live humbly. Thankfulness motivates us to live humbly. Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 1 It's a phrase that, you know, it's easy to read over if you really don't think through. You, you might kind of wonder, okay, why is he bringing this up again? But it says, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. I mean, this goes back decades. But it's important to think back of how God, how, you know, who and how God has used people who've come before us. Some of the things I've even put in your notes there, it's humbling to remember those who have faithfully served before us. Sometimes we, in the midst of, of ministry, in the midst of opportunities, we can think, wow, this is what we're doing. This is, you know, this is the opportunities that, that we are taking advantage of. And my, you know, how God has put us here for this moment. Lest we forget, people have come before us and paved the way and, and shared Christ to us. And, and even we've learned from many of their mistakes and some of the good things that God used them to do. I've mentioned several times the book that our family went through recently called Daring Devotion. 31 days and uh, went through uh, different missionary families and hardships many times, but how those families and individuals, some single men, some single ladies even, how they continued to say and choose what we just sang. I still will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thankfulness motivates us to live humbly as we think about those who've come before us. Secondly, we see it's encouraging to reflect on how God blessed them and used them. But I want you to think about the last part. It's challenging to, cons to consider how future generations will remember us. We're sitting here in October 2022. But what about 60 years from now? I'm not going to be around. Some of you may. I won't. I don't think. Not 60 years from now. But in 60 years from now, if there's a congregation still meeting at Northwest Classical Academy or perhaps somewhere in Kennesaw at that point, maybe at that point, how will David Huffman be remembered? Will David Huffman be remembered from, from a guy that likes barbecue, mac and cheese, and sweet tea? Will David Huffman be remembered for somebody that likes to go and ride on his mountain bike? Will David Huffman be remembered for somebody that enjoys being outside? Or will David Huffman be remembered for someone who lived humbly and served God with a purpose far greater than any of those things that I've mentioned? And those same questions are for you. 
how will you be remembered? Will you be remembered? Oh, that, that guy or that girl, they, they were funny. Oh, that person was driven. That person loved to golf. That person loved the Georgia Bulldogs. That person, and all those things aren't bad, but my question is, how much do you love those things? How much do you invest in those things? Is it so much that that is what you will be remembered by or will be able to, people be able to look back and, boy, and say, that individual left a legacy of living for Jesus Christ? As we think about who's come before us, even here in Nehemiah chapter 12, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. What's the legacy that you will leave? Think about that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, if you would. Acts chapter 9, you can leave something in Nehemiah chapter 12. But look with me in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36. I think this is a a very encouraging passage. As we we look back in a time frame that was, in many ways, was very male-dominant. The culture... But yet in this passage, a lady's life is put in spotlight. Nonetheless, at her death. Notice with me in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. So in Acts 9, verse 36, it says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was... And then notice what it says. It doesn't say, man, she made some awesome chicken dumplings. She was a phenomenal homemaker. She was so creative. She was funny. She was driven. No, it says she was full of good works and acts of charity. And then notice verse 39. So Peter rose and went with them, knowing and hearing that Tabitha was sick. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. This wasn't just some ladies that had been going to a knitting class. These were people who, who had some things that it says she did acts of charity. Very possible that people who needed some things. And Tabitha took the skills and the time and her abilities to say, I will fill that need but for God's glory. That's the legacy that she left. What will your legacy be? Pray that these examples will challenge you. Notice... Back in Nehemiah chapter 12, thankfulness motivates us to live worshipfully. Thankfulness motivates us to live worshipfully. A couple things I see throughout chapter 12. One is to live worshipfully equals or is the same as to live intentionally. To live worshipfully is the same as to live intentionally. Notice with me in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 8. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the sons of thanksgiving, or the, of the songs of thanksgiving. There is leadership here. This was intentional. And why is it intentional? Because all of us, back in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in modern day culture now, all of us have a tendency to not be thankful. So there's some leadership here to say, yes, we are in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. But then notice verse 24. So Nehemiah now, uh, chapter 12, and verse 24. And the chiefs 
of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks. According to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. This wasn't just a special praise time, but this was a, began to be a habitual um, offering of praise. And then look with me in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. They were intentional about this, and they, they, they looked out and they called forth. I don't know how they did it. They didn't have a newspaper, I don't think. So I, I'm not sure how they got the word out, but they, they wanted all the Levites who were even outside of Jerusalem in different villages, they wanted them to come to Jerusalem. And it says, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. A people that for many years, unfortunately, had not made the worship of God, Jehovah, central to their life and living. Now saying, we want the Levites here. Find them where they are and bring them to the city for this dedication of the wall. And it says they brought them to Jerusalem. Why? To celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then notice verse 28. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem. And from the villages of the Netophathites. That's a good one. So the singers, too, are coming from different areas because why? They were intentional about wanting to give praise to the Lord. We're meeting right here in a school, right? I can tell you from experience of the meetings I've been involved in, of meeting some of the teachers, Northwest Classical Academy, the, the leadership and the teachers and staff, they are intentional about education. Here, I don't agree with everything they do because they're humans just like I am. And it's not a Christian school, so there's some differences there. But I know that they are intentional about education. Many of you who sit before me this morning, you're intentional about education. You do your projects. You study for your exams. You want to pass your class. You're intentional about education. We often are intentional about our work. We show up when we're supposed to. We, we work you know, the time. We want to get the salary at the end. We want the benefits, but we're intentional about work. We're intentional about our leisure activities. And whatever that may be for you, it might be riding a bike. It may be going to a ball game. It may be playing golf. It may be doing you know, pickleball. There's so many different things. That's one thing that, I, that always amazes me in the United States of America, the variety of how we spend our time leisurely. I mean, it, there's just so many ways, and we're intentional about that. We make time for it. There's stores that are dedicated to a lot of these different things. You can go to a camping store. You can go to a golfing store. You can go to a knitting store. You've got all these things, and we're intentional about that. How intentional are we about our worship? Are we intentional? Do we make it a priority? Or is worship kind of like, well, I mean, if it happens, and occasionally I'm going to set aside some time, when it works out, how intentional are we? We see here in Nehemiah chapter 12, they're being intentional about their worship. Is it easier, a couple questions for you to think about, obviously don't answer them out loud, but is, is it easier for you to skip a deadline for something involving your schooling than it is for time in God's word and fellowship maybe with other believers? The answer to that will reveal some of your priorities. Is it easy for, easier for you to skip Maybe a gathering of the church family and, and being with your church family, is it easier to skip that or is it easier to skip a day at work? Well, the answer to that is going to help you to 
See the priorities that you have for your life. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then verse 25 says, Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why is that passage even necessary? Because it's easy for us to neglect, to not be intentional. Not only about, you know, it's just coming together as a church family, but in all aspects of worship. It's easy for us to go about our duties as a student, our duties as an employee, our duties even as parents, without a worship-filled attitude. We need to be intentional about our worship to the Lord. To live worshipfully also means to live purely. Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 30 says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. We don't, in the New Testament time, and in the time of grace and church age, we don't follow all the, the laws and the rituals of purification that happened in the Old Testament. But may this serve as a reminder that as we live worshipfully, it's going to mean that we live purely. Growing up, we often had carpet in our homes. It didn't seem, I don't know why, but it didn't seem at least as popular to do tile and and hardwood flooring. Um, And so we often had carpet in our homes. And our family grew up, and I, I grew up, we didn't take our shoes off when we came into the house, even with carpet. We just kept our shoes on and walked all through the house, and the result, sometimes, after I came from football practice or, you know, riding my bike outside or cutting the grass and then walking all over my carpet in my room, the result in time was that my carpet got pretty dirty. But then I started to date Kim Lowerman, and when I showed up to Kim Lowerman's house, the first time I walked into the foyer and I saw a ton of shoes because they had nine children and then the two parents. So there were 11 people's shoes, Sunday shoes, casual shoes, school You know, I had all these shoes in the foyer. And I'm like, what, what, what's this? Oh, we take our shoes off before we walk into the house. I'm like, what? Do, do I have to take my shoes off? And Kim was like, yes, you do. And I think even one time I tried, you know, to keep my shoes on. Because honestly, this may be a little bit more information you want, but I'm, I, I was a little embarrassed about my toes at the time. I've got crooked toes. And I didn't want my girlfriend to see my crooked toes, right? And sometimes I wore shoes without socks. So if I took my shoes off, it means she, she and all eight siblings and her parents would see my crooked toes. I'm thinking, no, I'll just keep my shoes on. So I would walk in and her mom would like, uh-uh-uh, David. I'm like, oh. What, what? Your shoes. Okay. Well, pretty soon I got in the habit, okay, when you come to Kim Lyerman's house, you take your shoes off at the door. Guess what you would see if you come into our foyer this afternoon? A ton of shoes. Because we kind of got used to that. Now, thankfully, we have hardwood floors in most of our house, but still on the carpet. I had a, a guy come over a few days ago. We think we might have flying squirrels in our attic. So, BJ team, if you hear any scratching at night, you've got extra guests uh, that weren't invited. We think we might have flying squirrels in our attic, and this guy came to check, and, and I showed him, you know, I was walking him around, and I purposefully took my shoes off at the door at the carpeted room. He's got boots on. I thought he'd get the hint. Nope. He just comes barging right in. And I just kind of cringed. I was like, oh, 
You know, Kim's finding out now. I didn't tell her until now, but I didn't see any big, you know, mud marks. But why is this important? Because when I went to Kim Lyerman's house, that was Walt and Marianne Lyerman's house. They set the rules. They set the guidelines. In our home, we've told our, our kids, this is kind of what we do and, and, and help us by this. In God's economy, he sets the rules. He sets the guidelines. We can't come to the Lord. We can't come to worship and say, I'm going to worship God however I please. I'm going to worship God because it feels better for me to do it this way. I'm going to worship God because it's a little inconvenient for me to worship God's way. No, God sets the rules. And in his economy, he has the final answer. So much so that in John 5, 24, he gives some, or John 4, 24, it says, God is spirit. And he tells us a little bit of how we're to worship. It says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just an emotional experience. It's not a problem to get emotional about things of the Lord. We're going to see that here in a few minutes. But there is a problem if we get all emotional about worshiping and serving God and we do it in a way that's contrary to God's truth. That's a huge problem. And unfortunately, there are millions of followers of Christ who say, yeah, we're worshiping, we do this, but they could care less about how they live for him. And they're, they're not looking in God's guidelines. I'm not talking about some of the, the preferences that we have and some of the different personalities of churches. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a lot of very clear things in God's word where he says, this is how you should live in accordance to my will, to my guidelines, to my rules. God sets the rules. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then the question is answered. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. God receives us as we are. Yes, amen. I'm going to preach that all day long. But God doesn't want us just to remain in our sin and become comfortable in the presence of a holy God to live however we please. As we get to know God and our relationship grows in him and the Holy Spirit, not only does God give us the guidelines, but he gives us the guide, the Holy Spirit, to help us to live for him. But even so, many who say they're following Christ are suppressing the Holy Spirit within them say, no, no, I, I want to live this way. I know, I know God's word says these things, but I think we can kind of reinterpret it in our modern day to maybe mean this, or, or maybe it didn't quite mean that. Well, there's a lot of things that are very, very clear in Scripture. That's one reason why in the Wednesday nights and the com combined community groups, we're going through things of how to be ready to respond to today's cultural issues. And you'll notice we go back to God's word every time. We don't go back to, hey, what, what do you think? What, what do I think? Well, how does this make you feel? No, we go back to, what does God's word say? What are, the, what are the guidelines? What does the Holy Spirit lead us to do as believers? How are we to worship in truth? And the question of remembrance that we have to remind ourselves is that all of those things, sometimes we may even think, these are, man, they're, they're, they're tough, but all of those things are for our good so we have to remind ourselves that God sets the rules Colossians 1 verses 10 through 14 we went through the whole book of Colossians probably about a year and a half ago but I was reminded of Colossians 1 10 through 14 we won't you know kind of 
break apart the whole passage, but follow along with me if you can. Colossians 1, 10 through 14, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Did you get that? It's not Paul's will. It's not David's will. It's not, you know, Colossian church's preference or their will. It says the knowledge of his will, Jesus Christ. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does that entail? He, he tells us, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, verse 11, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks. That's the part of living for his glory and, and living purely before him. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then notice verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And, but yet there are millions of believers today trying to convince themselves that, yes, I'm a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I'm a part of the kingdom of God's Son, but I still want to follow, in a lot of ways, the kingdom of the world. This passage says, no, I have delivered, Jesus Christ has delivered us from that. We don't have to be enslaved to those things. And we sure, certainly shouldn't choose willingly and even celebrate some of those decisions to follow the worldly kingdom. We must, must abide by his will, walk in a manner worthy of him. We see also to live worshipfully means to live passionately. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 through 43, where I'm going to pick out some things in this passage. To live worshipfully means to live passionately. Verse 27, we've already read, but I want to highlight a couple more things in, that, in those two verses. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. How? With gladness. With thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Kind of like a, a, a guitar-type instrument. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district around Jerusalem. So this was a, a, a passion-filled event. They didn't just come together and go, oh, well, glad it's done. Yeah, that was kind of tough. No, they were singing. They were praising the Lord. They had instruments there. This was a, a passionate response to an amazing God. We see in verse 30, the priests and the Levites purify themselves. They purify the people and the gates and the wall. And then notice verse 31, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. Archaeological evidence indicates that this wall may have been about nine feet wide. So you could easily fit, you know, three people. So they're bringing leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. So again, there, there's some intentionality here and there's, there's a passionate response to all that God has done to dedicate the wall, to remember God's power, and then to look forward of what God wants us to do next. There's two choirs that have been appointed. Verse 36, we see the latter part of verse 36, it talks about musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. Verse 37, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David. 
at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate in the east. And then notice verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I, Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall. So if you get the picture here, one of the choirs went one way south and then one of the, on the wall, and one of the choirs went north. This gives them a panoramic view of the city, of the temple that was rebuilt decades earlier, and is able, they're, they're singing and they're giving praise. And then eventually, we're going to see in this passage, they come and gather together back in the temple, but they are responding passionately to all that God has done. And that is part of living worshipfully, is to live passionately. Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. Verse 41, it says they had trumpets. Verse 42, it says singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. But notice verse 43. If you you haven't followed along until now, at least look at 43 if you would. Nehemiah 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. And who gave them joy? What's the verse say? God gave them joy. This wasn't something that they, they had to muster up. This wasn't something that they had to, you know, fine-tune the musicians and fine-tune all the things of the environment to kind of get it at the exact right mood so it would just, you know, so there, no, God gave them the joy. God gave them the joy. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the notice says, the women and children also rejoiced. This impacted all parts of society. This wasn't just for the spiritual leaders. This wasn't just for Nehemiah and Ezra. It says, the women and children also rejoiced. And then the last phrase, I love it. It says, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard, where? Far away, far off. Because they weren't embarrassed. They weren't thinking, well, how do I sound? Am I on tune? I, I don't really know the song that well, so, I, so I'm, not gonna, I'm just kind of going to lag behind. Now, I want to say this before I go further. If you're just here and you're discovering what it means to be a Christian and follow Christ, we want you to, to see you know, what we do in, in spirit and in truth. And then someday, I hope you will feel comfortable. But first and foremost, we want to welcome you to our midst and we want to see you and help you grow. But those of us who are followers of Christ, may we follow their example and never be ashamed to sing to our amazing God. Never be ashamed to talk about how amazing God is to us. Never be ashamed to sit at the, at the table with empl- other employees or students or wherever we're at and say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. It would almost, if we don't do that, it would almost be as if and I'm going to give you some examples. Back in 1993, the fall of 1993, we played football. We were a small Christian school. I've already told you before, we played both ways, offense and defense. You get hurt, they tape you up, send you back in because we, had, we didn't have enough players. We played John Hancock, away game. Third, and we were, it was overtime, third overtime. And then when the last touchdown, when we scored the last touchdown, the team... Our team went wild. Helmets came off. The fans were screaming. Kim was already at college, so she unfortunately wasn't there as a cheerleader to see the victory. But her mom was there. And even though I was stunk to high heaven and was sweaty and dirty, her mom came up and hugged me. And I remember even saying, Mom, I stink. She said, I don't care. You just won the game. I'm like, okay. But imagine if in that moment, when we won the game at the touch, you know, the final touchdown, finished third overtime and beat John Hancock, imagine if I had just nonchalantly kind of walked away 
and just gone, on, gone over, got my water bottle, went back to the locker room with no expression. My coach, the fans, Kim's mom, my parents would have been like, what is your problem? What is wrong with you? A few months later, we were in Greenville, South Carolina, now on a basketball team, and we were at an invitational tournament at Southside Christian School, last game of the tournament. We had the ball, but we were down by one point. We were inbounding the ball. We had a special play for the ball to get passed into Eric Champion, 6'3", a guy on our team, uh, one of my good friends, but the best player of the team, uh, scored many more points than, than I did for certainly in the season. So the ball was to get to Eric Champion. He could go down low, but he could also shoot threes. The ball was to get to Eric. You know what happened? Eric wasn't open. So the ball was passed to me. I didn't have time to pass the ball. I only averaged about 10 points a game, mostly on layups, but I didn't have a choice. So I go up, and I take the jumper, and it goes in. But imagine if right after it went in at the buzzer and our team won, imagine if I had just gone, okay, go over, sit down, put my sweats on, and walk away. Everybody again would be like, what's, what's wrong with you? You just won the game. You, you helped the team win the game. But yet sometimes after all that God has done, and even as we see here in Nehemiah and the nation of Israel, all of God's power that we saw, even his faithfulness, and in our story, there's so many things that you can go back to and says, God showed his faithfulness here, and God brought me to himself through this person and this message and through his word and all these things, but yet sometimes our tendency is we can live in a way that's certainly without much passion have opportunities to sing to him, and it's, Lord, bless, praise. Is that how we should sing to our God? To our amazing God? The way we live and the way we talk, and do we, do we talk about him? Are we, are we passionate about who we serve? Or are we passionate to say, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's the hope of my life. Sometimes when I've mentioned to others as I'm out and about, and I'll say, you know, they'll say, well, what's the name of your church? And I'll say, one hope, because Jesus is our one hope. And sometimes I'll see people even kind of react like, well, wow, one? Like Jesus is the only? Yeah, pretty much. He's our only hope. How passionate do you serve the Lord? How passionate are you to be able to sing about the amazing God that we can call God the Father? We can call him our friend, and we certainly can call him our Savior. Then to finish up, we see that thankfulness motivates us to live generously. Thankfulness motivates us to live generously. Nehemiah chapter 12, 44 through 47. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions, or gift of possessions, required by the law, for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. We see a part of this response, a part of the thankfulness is not only at, at, at song worship time, but it affects all areas of life. It affects the possessions. They were, they were rejoicing even over the Levites. In Nehemiah 13, when we see that a good portion were already away from the Lord, we see how they neglected the, the Levites. But here they're rejoicing and they're, they're sharing not only for the care of the temple and the city, but also of the Levites and the priests. 
They live generously because of their thankfulness. But also notice in verse 45, they were willing to give of their their time. And they, the Levites, performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers. It took time to do that. It was intentional. There were some commitments that had to be made. There were sacrifices. There were things that they could not do because they were doing these things for the Lord. There was a gift of time. And then what I just read, but we'll finish in the next verse, gift of abilities. Verse 45, the latter part. As did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. And then verse 46. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers. And there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron or, in essence, the priests. But we see they, these, you know, the Levites, the priests, the gatekeepers, the singers, they're all using abilities that God had given them for his glory and to show their thankfulness. Just think back. Do, are, are you, does your thankfulness motivate you to live sacrificially? Does your thankfulness to God and as he is your savior and he is your friend, does it help you to look past some financial maybe sacrifices, some inconvenient sacrifices? Does it help you to live sacrificially? What about does it help you to live purposefully? I'm not talking about duties. I'm not talking about checking off boxes. But does it help you to say, yes, I want to dedicate my life and I want to give my life to a purpose far greater than myself? Does it help you to live humbly? Do you remember those who've come before you? Do you remember how God used them and blessed them? But then do you also think, how are others going to remember me? What's the legacy that I will leave for Christ? Does it motivate you to live worshipfully? Do you live your life in worship? You can worship as you study. You can worship as you, even as you are in your leisure activities, as you work your job. Are those acts of worship? Are you just kind of going through day by day? And then lastly, what we just saw, does it motivate you to live generously? If you're not thankful, it'll be very difficult for you to live generously. Because our tendency will be, okay, what's in it for me? What can I keep? What can I gain from this? How can I have others serve my interests? How can I? But if we're thankful to the Lord and say, God, I want you to use all of me. I want you to use my time. I want you to use the possessions that I have. I want you to use the abilities that I have. And I want to show you through thankfulness my devotion and my love back for you. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning?